0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Laws make criminals. And we need to really decide who we allow to make those laws. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. I give thanks for this burrito that I'm about to consume. You fought the good fight to be where you are today, here on this plate. May your spirit be free as I eat your delicious body. Rest now and join your brothers and sisters in the next life. Hello. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I'm David Chen, and I also spend $14,000 on my jeans. Joining me today is Patrick Lepic. Hey,
0: David Chen, do uh, you want to do a podcast about the curse? Like, we, like, have, have insightful little things, you fucking baby.
1: <laughs> wow, that's way harsh, man. That's way harsh. Sort <laughs>
0: channeling my inner Whitney.
1: <laughs> Those are, of course, references to the fact that today on the podcast, we're going to be discussing The Curse Episode 8, Down and D- Dirty, you can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. We're going to start by talking about our overall thoughts on episode eight and then moving into a very detailed spoilery recap of the episode. But before we do that, Patrick Klepek, I do want to mention a couple of things um, about the last couple weeks of episodes. You know, we get did get this comment on episode six, so a couple weeks ago, Todd wrote in to DecodingTV.com about that scene with uh, Nala's father getting involuntary uh, chiropractor, (laughs) you know, help. Violence? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That's right. And... Uh, the character played by Barkhad Abdi and Todd writes in physical therapy is based on science. Most of the short-term pain benefit you get from things like chiropractic and ap- acupuncture is simply placebo. Placebo effect is an extremely powerful phenomenon. Literally, was just talking with uh, neuroscientists about this the other day. End quote. Uh, you know, I, I, I have looked into the science around chiropractors and physical therapy, and so so I agree, physical therapy is definitely based on science. Um, And that chiropractor work like undergoing chiropractic care has apparently been uh, shown to alleviate some short term pain from people is what I understand. Um, But I think that Todd's interpretation is the way that we're supposed to view that scene from the show, which is that what would really help this guy is probably some kind of physical therapy or something beyond just this guy. Tweaking his neck—that's that, yeah, probably has a pinched yeah. nerve or something yeah, yeah. like
0: that—and that's going to require identification effort, right? Uh, hopefully not surgery, but probably more than just like, snapping. More than his just neck. Whitney
1: giving her credit card to this guy that she knows and saying, "Hey, like, help this other guy out." uh And, and yet, so, it, fall,
0: it falls completely—you know—thematically within Whitney as a character to do a grand gesture for short-term gain mostly for for like she feels like she's doing something but in the end she's not doing And at anything. the end of the
1: day isn't that the most important thing <laughs> is that she feels like she's doing something you know and, so, and I, can't,
0: like, I can't quite tell if i'm reading too into all of the actions in this show to be like are they doing a commentary on the modern understanding of like chiropractic therapy as a way of commenting on whitney's character well, either way, it still works. I, I don't yeah, know, yeah, yeah. but it it certainly goes uh, in 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 symbiosis with
1: uh, with Whitney's actions. I did see that interpretation mentioned a few times, and I'll, I will just tell you too: so I, the interpretation I saw mentioned a few times was we're supposed to, I think, internalize that this is not the best form of care for this guy at this moment, right? That it it is exactly what you said: short term gain, not thinking through consequences, et cetera, et cetera, I will also tell you that from my own personal experience. I did chiropractic care for many, many years, uh, and still had lots of pain. And it wasn't until I did physical therapy that like the pain finally went away. Uh, I'm not saying chiropractic care is, uh, not real or or worthless or anything like that. I'm just sharing from my own experience, uh, that it was only through physical therapy plus chiropractic care that I like really, I feel much better now. Um, for years I had like shoulder pain. So it was, um, uh... Yeah, it's it's something I've gone through myself, and uh, I felt for I felt for uh, Barkhad Abdi is what I'm trying to say. You know, yes. in that scene, it's like, hey, this is this is just the first step of your pain journey, my friend. Um, <laughs> anyway, he he is okay. We see him in this episode, and he is apparently fine. So, well, as far uh, as
0: we know, right? Like, uh, may, maybe that is just meant to be a a, a way mm. of demonstrating Whitney's sort of blunt approach to everything in her life, and her increasingly blunt approach to everything that orbits her but uh yeah i i guess i'll be slightly surprised if there isn't a more meaningful consequence for that but maybe not maybe it is just meant to be maybe 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 the sacti brothers had a really bad you know chiropractic encounter like man, we're gonna we're gonna get them in this show like don't don't you worry
1: yeah yeah ab by the way is uh bar cut off these i've been was blanking on the character's name ab is his name uh the other thing I wanted to mention is last week on the podcast, I made a big deal about this shot that happens, you know, of Whitney and her father inside their car. Uh, and uh, I was saying how that's like really indicative of the surveillance style of the show. Um, and I kind of want to walk that back a little bit uh, because pretty much all the shots of inside of cars in the show are done as though they could have been surveillance. Mm. Like someone was mm. I think it was just extremely obvious in that scene. But if you look at like for instance the car shots in this episode, they could have easily been filmed by adjacent cars. And in fact in the opening scene, looks like it is being filmed by an adjacent car. So it's like, uh I I got really excited last week, but I think probably the excitement was not <laughs> fully warranted. So I just wanted to to make that clear. Uh, it's
0: a show that invites you to take a close read and that'll make me so fascinated about where it ends up is how much of that is just what's going on in this show. And then maybe yeah. it's simpler than it, you know, invites you to kind of scrutinize.
1: Indeed. Uh so the other thing is, before, you know, always open to your comments at decodingtv.com or at decodingtv at gmail.com. The only thing I just want to mention is we got some episodes of this weekend streaming happening on the feed. We got uh Fargo we're covering with Jesse Earl. We got uh Murder at the End of the World, and The Crown as well being covered. So you uh, just wanted to let people know that uh we will be covering those shows I just mentioned, or we have already covered those shows to completion. Uh So you can watch those shows, listen to our conversations about them, and enjoy them over on the Decoding TV podcast feed. All right, Patrick Klepik, let's get to episode eight. What did you think of episode eight of The Curse, Down and Dirty? Um...
0: Uh, <laughs> I think it's a great episode. Um... I can see why the the running times are getting longer. There's a lot more happening a lot a lot of things are coming to a head. Yeah. but it's it's just i I love the layer of tension that just sits over every scene now. we've spent such we've spent a lot of time with these characters. We know a lot about them. there's a lot we don't know about them, but what we do know about them allows us to just start anticipating like where are scenes going to go um and in some ways it follows that in other ways it doesn't and that's like a pleasant surprise but i i'm i'm really enjoying watching these characters bounce off one another yeah. now that they have been wound up like they're a, a clock like like just like and i don't know which direction they're going to end up walking off in and characters have made decisions that are are clearly going to have you can read it on their face, they're like they're almost commuting communicating to us in the audience like it's gonna get much worse from here i and <laughs> like, um like multiple characters just staring off in a way of just telling the audience like it's not it's not getting better in the future, and so it's funny, I get to the end of this episode, and I still really don't know where we're headed, and we're awfully close to the finish line, David, and I find that tremendously exciting because i i this episode and still feel like i am in the hands of people that have a story they want to tell it feels very it doesn't feel like we're off the rails it, it just feels mm-hmm. like a story in which it's unclear what they want to tell me where they want these characters to land and sort of what the broader message will be uh, therein i think we can pick up a lot of themes but i'm wondering like what's the period or what's the exclamation mark? Or what's the question yeah. mark? And oftentimes in a television show, it's giving you pretty like clear markers at this stage. Right. Like, like this the is heist what we're... is
1: going to happen on October twenty twenty ninth, and then it's like October tenth, October twentieth, October twenty fourth. The and murderer like... is revealed. It's like there's <laughs> right.
0: there's sort of like you understand you not you don't know what the answer is, but you understand what are we crescendoing to? Yeah. And what's really interesting about this show is. I mean, it's a disaster, but it doesn't have a shape. And
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: what I'm enjoying about every episode that's happening is I think my assumption is at the end, you'll be able to look back and go, wow, I understand along the way how we were building to this, even if I couldn't see through the fog of the show itself. And part of that's because I find myself so just sort of wrapped up in the individual moments. I think there are so many great character beats in all and in, in many of the episodes, but this one in particular, where I'm not really anxious to get like, oh, what's around the corner? Like, I'm not that anxious to get there. Like, we could just sit with this for a little while longer, and I think we'll get something interesting out of it. And I think that is prevalent through this episode. I think it's. I think it's one of my favorite episodes, even as it's my anxiety is now fully off the charts. It's no longer cringe, really. It's it's just anxiety. It's it's a mm-hmm. different level of stress and. Uh, as someone yeah, that really yeah. I think right. finds themselves enjoying things like horror films, like I enjoy being in like a stressful, like anxious feeling while watching a story. And what I really uh, enjoy with The Curse is that it operates in different modes of stress that are nuanced and different, but are different all the same.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I will say that if I'm just evaluating the eight episodes we've seen so far, I think the show is obviously about the best intentions and well-laid plans of white people and how they can go awry, right? Like that's clearly Mm -hmm. the, the thrust of the whole show, the thrust of the title of the show, which is happens because of Asher kind of showing who he really is in a, in an offhanded moment and and then gets cursed. Uh, And then secondarily, I would say it's about the dissolution of Asher and Whitney's marriage, you know, like, that that to me seems the strong second theme, and if both of those things get a payoff, like at the end of the show, or n- not even a payoff at this point, they're 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 om- virtually already paid off at this point. So mm-hmm. If we get to the end of the show and it just kind of does a decent follow through, that's already going to be very successful. So the question for me is, can it do th- things on top of that, beyond those things? And I think this episode it already does with the Kara character who's like, that was the most upsetting scene for me. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, But yeah, is, um, is there anything, is anything going to come of the supernatural elements of the curse? Is, is Dougie's storyline going anywhere? You know, like those are some other side things that if they go, if they have a direction or something happens there, that'll be interesting. I'll be curious about that. But even if that doesn't happen, like I still think it will have delivered on these two very solid through lines. Mm -hmm um, that I'll have been quite pleased with. So, um, and I like this episode as well. I thought, as you said, it's, it's less cringe, right? I think you're right. It's less cringe. It's more stressful. It's more stressful than it is cringe these days. So, uh, yeah, overall, very solid episode. Uh, those are our overall thoughts on season one, episode eight of the curse.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from everything iconic, ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store
0: or SleepNumber.com.
1: All right, let's get into a spoiler-filled recap of what happens in Episode 8 of The Curse. Let's talk about Asher and Whitney. We open on a group of young kids coming to the jean shop that's been charging stolen items to Whitney's credit card. I mean, let's just talk about this whole (laughs) opening for a second, Patrick (laughs) Lepeck. This is wild, right? Like, we're opening on these characters. We have no idea who they are, Mm -mm. what they're doing. We see that they're going to Española, but we have no idea, like, who are these people? Why are we following them? And then, of course, it's revealed. They've heard about the, you know, special gene giveaway program. (laughs) And so they're coming, and, you know, one of the boys hits on the woman that's working at the counter, which they have a, like, cute little interaction. Uh, You know what this reminds me of Patrick Klepik? Is... Costco used to have one of the most generous return policies in the retail world. I'm
0: aware. There, do you want to? I do you want. I I might have committed what, uh, I mean, it can't be fraud if Costco's oh, policy allows it. Um, oh my but, god. Um,
1: when I was between uh, stealing that kid's lunch money and you and you know, grand larceny from Costco, this. Decoding TV has become a litany of uh, Patrick Klepik's crimes. <laughs> Statue of Limitations is up. Um, but uh, same era, when I was in high
0: school, I got very into digital cameras. Uh, like, mm. I, you and I essentially, you know, like, like, of a certain age, like, were digital cameras birthed into existence. The first one I had was the um, uh, uh, Mavicom. It's the one that took, like, the... The big flop, like the the three point five, uh, like floppy disk, and you would, mm. you would put it into the side. You take wow. the picture, and it would go like. Arr. I mean, you'd hear the.
1: That's the too grinding. early for me. I had the Canon like ELF camera, E-L-P-H. I remember using that. That was wild. I can't remember. I, a- I can't remember the exact one off the top of my. head. Anyway, but I got very
0: into digital photography. Very, it's like I had saved up money from like early games writing I'd done, and bought that from Costco. And you're right. They did have a very generous return policy. So, so
1: their policy, let me articulate it. Sure. Their policy was if you are unsatisfied with any purchase, you can return it for a full refund. That was mm-hmm. that was the policy before. Uh and Patrick Lepic, what did you do with that policy?
0: Well, um, around that era, new digital cameras were coming out all the time, David. Just all the time. Like technology was advancing very fast. And Costco <laughs> was like, if you came in and just said it's broken with all the parts, they said, okay, and, and just gave you a credit. And I'd go back to the, the, to the electronics area and just get a brand new digital camera. And I would do that every six months. Um, I would keep all the parts because that was the thing that Costco was concerned about. They would open it up. There's the cable. Like, there's the camera. There's mm-hmm. the instructions. You've got everything. Okay. Here's your credit. And I'd go back with my mom. Wow. <laughs>
1: it was um, wow but she's complicit. Yeah. Wow. She's
0: like, well, that is. That was their policy. Yes. You could just <laughs> return it.
1: Very, um, very upsetting. You know, you are why we cannot have nice things, Patrick LePik. You know, uh, is... Well, and
0: then eventually they did amend. They still have a, so, an
1: extremely generous policy, but well, well what, what 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 happened was people would take advantage, like Patrick LePik, and in fact, it was a very serious issue when it came to um, televisions. Yes. So you would buy like a fifty-five inch television, a plasma television, and then five years later you would like take it back in and say, I'm no longer satisfied with this device. Mm -hmm. And then they would like accept, you know, they would give you a full refund and accept it back. And, and somebody even, uh, somebody, I remember reading an article about it and somebody was asking like, Hey, tell me about your television exchange program. And it's like, there is no television exchange program, you know, like it's just the return policy. And I'll tell you one of the most haunting experiences I've ever had, Patrick Mm Lepic. One of the most haunting experiences I've ever had at Costco uh, of someone abusing their return policy was I remember after Christmas, it was like in the time between Christmas and New Year's, I went to return an item and I stood in the return line and on the shelf behind them, they have placed like all the items that people have returned that date for like theoretical return. And there, there is all kinds of stuff. There's like uh, an entire raw chicken. That like, you know, somebody you can't, you obviously have to throw away because you can't assume that's going to be good anymore. <laughs> but then there was a dead poinsettia that somebody had returned. And <laughs> I remember this woman <laughs> looking at me This and I was like, oh, wow, people returned the poinsettia after Christmas. And then she said, and she looked at me, she said, yeah, people, someone returned this poinsettia. Christmas is over. Christmas, Christmas is over. <laughs> and I'll never forget her like staring at me and saying, Christmas is over. It's like someone, <sighs> something, someone who's in a horror film. Like, <laughs> well, I, 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 yeah, I bought anyway. my I bought
0: my first HDTV from Costco, but then went to college, and oh, it was so heavy. And by the time I was leaving college, and I looked it up, in that time Costco had. I mean, basically, what happened was yeah. the internet got exceedingly like social networks emerged. I, I like, don't
1: think the internet was necessary for this one. I think this is a word of mouth. Well, but that's what I you, mean. But, like, that's yeah. what I mean. Like, it's word of mouth that then the
0: internet, like, once people are connected to a degree, can sure, act as sure. an accelerant. Um, where that policy, you can imagine how it, it functions. Is like, well, sure, someone comes in and abuses it for, like, a TV. But they probably walk out with a point seven of some raw chicken. <laughs> and then at a certain <laughs> point, when you've gotten to television exchange program. Yeah, um, yeah. And the funny part is, I don't think that I... I didn't stumble into the camera thing because I read it on the internet. That was just a consequence of us under, like I actually brought a broken one in and they're like, yeah, just, I understand right. it's
1: broken. Go get, and then all of a sudden it dawned and you're upon like me. Oh, like, someone could abuse this basically. 100%. Yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Got a lot well, of good anyway, just, out of that. To be clear, Costco now has a 90 day limit on many items, including televisions and cameras. So yeah, yeah, uh, those days are Christmas is over for everyone now. Um, Yeah, my my, my digital
0: camera poinsettia has been, is is my days of that (laughs) are long behind me.
1: (laughs) Anyway, uh, so that's basically what happens in this scene is people are like, oh, we can just steal jeans. No one's going to tell or turn us in. And uh, you can just sell, you can just flip the jeans on the internet and make money. So it's basically Whitney's just giving away money. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I thought that was a lovely scene, very confusing at first, but you know, we, we trust the storytellers and it it ended up having a nice payoff. Uh, around the same time, Fernando and a group of men with guns approach Whitney and Asher's house. Fernando's upset about what Whitney's done at the gene shop, noting that it's bringing bad people into the community. Uh, Fernando comes inside at Whitney's insistence, at which point a verbal fight breaks out between the three of them, with Asher failing to intimidate Fernando. When Fernando leaves, Whitney reveals that their card has been charged for $14,000 worth of jeans. Uh, Whitney proposes charging the jeans and coffee store rent, but Asher points out they're purposely subsidizing the stores in the hopes that the show will eventually bring customers. When Asher argues the plan might result in Fernando losing a job, Whitney brutally mocks Asher lot to unpack here, Patrick Klepek. Uh, I I was a little bit confused about Fernando being so upset because yeah. we see these kind of douchey white kids go in and steal the jeans, but they don't seem like a danger to society, you know? Um, so it was, was there like a separate group of people that were more dangerous? Or was Fernando just pissed about those kids that we saw in the first scene? And like, because he, he seemed to be describing them as gang members uh, and needing like, physical defense using guns so i was a little confused about that what was your interpretation there
0: i also was felt like we were missing i rewound the scene yeah it felt like we were missing
1: a scene basically did i like
0: like, you know i mean the last we get of this sequence or like this arc on the show is fernando uh but he doesn't forcibly stop someone from leaving in the sense that he physically engaged with them but i believe he put his car in front of the exit to the parking lot so that they couldn't leave because he was trying to stop someone from shoplifting. Uh, And I guess it's, I can understand the the first part, which is you're undermined when he says like, are you like setting me up to fail? Like, or, or, or or, or putting me into a trap. Um, Like if you're, if if this does undermine explicitly what they hired him Mm -hmm, to do, which is we'd like you uh, to watch this area and keep it secure and make sure that it's a safe place uh, in Española. And and then at the same time she has put a credit card that's like criminals come on through. And so right. It, mm. on a personal level I understand why he would feel
1: Absolutely, absolutely. uh
0: like uh, upset at Whitney because of that. Um, why didn't you tell me, this? you know, that sort of thing would have right. been a sort of natural consequence, but I don't the escalation to here's my gun bros and then we're also coming to your house. Like it just felt like we missed a su- like something of the show got snipped out and, right. and didn't make it in here because it's just, it felt like an escalation that was not based on previous information.
1: Yeah. I think like maybe we're meant to interpret that the thing with the kids coming into the jean shop happens all the time. Like yeah, $14,000. So how much, yeah. how much of those, like they're high end jeans probably. Right. Yeah. Um,
0: it looks like that kind of shop where they're, you're not buying target, you know, 30, $40 jeans. Like I'm assuming these jeans are, you know, hundreds, of dollars. Hundreds, hundreds of, of dollars, hundreds of dollars.
1: Right. And yeah. so the $14,000. So, if, but but the, the kids have gone because they've heard about it from. Right. Other, so it's like maybe other people are bad, you know, like basically like those, Costco return policy, like becoming right. word of mouth. <laughs> right. I mean, look, I, I'm not saying those kids are nice. I don't think that I wouldn't want to hang out with them or anything like that. But like, I don't know that they need like automatic weapons to like defend. They seem like anybody. dumb teens, right? Yes, like they exactly, like yeah.
0: they're they may be assholes, but. Look, I'm I'm confessing to crimes left and right on this podcast. Yes. Like, like, like
1: pl- plenty of teens are unlikable people.
0: It doesn't necessarily <laughs> plenty mean of they decoding need to be TV shot TV on co- site. Yeah,
1: plenty of decoding <laughs> TV co-hosts are like just morally reprehensible, you know? So mm, Yeah, look, hey. Yeah. Anyway. Uh and then and then uh so yeah, who who knows, maybe we'll get more answers on that later. Whitney mocking Asher, pretty brutal stuff. Feels Whew. like the feels like the first time that's really happened. Uh, it doesn't feel like a common thing, um, but yeah, very, very harsh. Patrick, any any thoughts on that? Well, it feels we've
0: been, it feels very mask off for her for yes. the first time in yes. front of Asher. I feel like we've been building to a moment like this in yeah. which she is telling other people around her how she does or doesn't feel about a relationship with Asher. It's always difficult to pierce how much of this is her performance, how much of this is her true feelings. But obviously, they have a you know, we saw them in their most intimate, uh, selves. Like we, you know, we, we had a sex scene with them earlier in, in the show and like no judgment on like what gets you off, but like, obviously it is, it is portrayed as something, uh, a little bit different. And so obviously their relationship is complex and nuanced. And so, um, to arrive at this point where, I mean, it feels very in line with where Whitney is going as a character, but it's, you know when we have the sequence in the previous episode where she criticizes him uh in a different room with a door closed about his actions yeah. at the casino that is still a pretty it's it's biting it's it's mean but it feels within the bounds of Absolutely. I'm right. I'm upset at somebody that I right. thought I cared about and like I think what you did was inappropriate here well, well is well within
1: the bounds of normal relationship right exactly interaction it's,
0: you know yeah 100% and here is I want to demean this person yeah like i want i know their most intimate self and how they feel about themselves and i'm going to weaponize that against them in a way that is purposely meant to set them off and we have not seen whitney do we seen whitney be upset we've not seen her be demeaning in in this way and it it goes on for I mean, a while, like, you know, it's in part of that is just because of how uncomfortable it is. Like, I'm sure it's only a minute in the scope of the show, but it feels like an eternity while she's going through those actions.
1: It felt like the equivalent of Patrick Lepic's opening statement this week when I when I called his name, you know, so (laughs) I agree. Like this being a mask off moment is a very apt. There is a famous relationship. uh, Therapist uh or relationship therapists called the Gottmans they claim they're able to extremely accurately predict whether or not a couple will get a divorce simply by observing them for you know 30 to 60 minutes hmm. and they have these things called the four horsemen of the apocalypse when it comes to relationships um uh and one of the the one of the big ones is contempt uh and if you show contempt for your significant other that is a huge sign that your relationship will not last. Uh, And this was struck me as one of the most brazen displays of contempt I have witnessed uh, in a relationship before, you know, it's really demeaning and mocking. So brutal to watch, but you know, the brutality is not over yet. Let's talk about (laughs) what happens with Ash, uh, Asher and Kara this episode. So Whitney, Whitney, sorry, Whitney, Whitney, no worries. Uh, Whitney calls Kara to complain about Fernando and ends up serendipitously meeting with Kara's friend at a nearby restaurant Kara's friend doesn't seem to think highly of Whitney and jokes about pretending to act out a stereotype of how many think native people speak as a way of mocking her. Kara's friend claims he won't actually do it and then shortly after Whitney arrives, he mockingly gives thanks to his burrito before he eats it. (laughs) Whitney calls the act beautiful. That guy is awesome. That character is awesome, by the way. Even thinking about that moment, (laughs) like
0: like, every time he did it is just uh, beautiful. Like what in... Incredible character that i I think we're unlikely to see again, but just incredible moments in this episode of like
1: the moo Moo and like just oh, he's Delightful. he's kind of in some ways the closest thing to an audience surrogate where he's yeah. like directly calling Whitney out on her bullshit like mm-hmm. uh, but in a very subtle passive way, you know like in a kind of um in a way that is irresistible. Whitney, you know, uh, but yeah, uh, amazing character, really well done. Whitney invites Kara to a gathering she's having for a show, uh, for the show, where they'll record her interacting with the local art community. Um, Kara's friends end up finding a way to get invited. When Whitney arrives at the gathering, she discovers Kara having a strange interaction with the millionaire, homeowner, and art collector, which we later learn is because Kara wants him to buy her art, but he's a military contractor. In fact, the party is full of people who profit off of war. (laughs) Um, uh, by the way, there was a lovely moment when Kara says, you know, if you're an artist, you got to spend time with people you don't like in order to buy, who, you know, who want to <laughs> buy your art. And like Whitney's sitting right there and unclear whether Whitney realizes that, you know, what's going on. You uh, know, whether unlike, she's describing but, her. And there, there's
0: also an interesting moment that happens just to circle back to that previous exchange of where back to back we get moments with Whitney where she sits down with Kara to talk about the guns and she's, she's like, you know, like we have laws for, a reason um and that happens uh right after in w- with Asher saying well maybe we should just start charging them rent and it's like the moment Whitney gets friction on the things that she's thinks she's doing to help people mm. she just immediately starts reverting back to tendencies that feel very in line with something her parents might do um mm. and like increase like the gun is something that's been uh like shown over and over throughout the course of the show um and so i think it's interesting how on various parts of of whitney's generosity like once it became like once her plan begins to fall apart she just recedes back to like a very traditional sort of like scared white person and like well we just got to get these criminals out of the community um sort of thing
1: yeah indeed indeed um So at the gathering, Whitney approaches Kara's friend, who once again continues to stereotype shtick as a way of secretly screwing her over. Once again, uh, Whitney calls what he says beautiful. Later, an especially strange guy chats up and begins heavily hitting on Whitney. She doesn't rebuff his advances and accepts his invitation to check out a private elevator in the house, which turns out to just be a bathroom. Patrick Klepek, do you think anything went on in that bathroom? It was too fast, right? We didn't cut away. Uh, you know, I think, uh, some, some brief, uh, some brief petting could have occurred, you know, like, mm-hmm. I, think I mean, was she my... gave all the vibes yeah. of, Hey man, you want to go fuck me
0: in a bathroom? Like, I mean, that's like, that's like, God, that's how it felt like when,
1: uh, that, that, that was a very, here, here, here's my interpretation. Here's my interpretation of it is, and Patrick Klepek, I think you can agree with me about what I'm about to say. Oh, which of course. Is, I'll
0: just I'll just, I'm agree right off the bat. <laughs> which is, which anything is about which sometimes is like.
1: when people are filmed, they become different people.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yes.
1: Right. And uh, Whitney is like bringing this guy who's there for two hours, according to him. I, I love the scene where she they, they talk about like how he didn't bring the mic because uh, uh, Dougie said like this is just going to be B-roll. There's not going to be any audio. But he does have this like little shotgun mic, which, by the way, is perfectly adequate. It's not the audio is not great but having the little shotgun mic on his camera, like that will capture audio just fine. Especially if you're close up to the person. Uh, and and she, and she like talks herself into like, oh yeah, it'd actually be better without audio. Like it's actually going to be even better. Like, <laughs> Which is, I just thought was awesome. But anyway, I think she's like trying to put on a little performance and like, oh, look how interesting I am. Mm-hmm. I'm having heavy petting with strange men at art parties, you know, like (laughs) that's me, Whitney international woman of mystery, you know, like that was my interpretation of what was going on there. Cause she's kind of like putting on a little show for the camp, the camera.
0: I I think that's, I think that's right. I I think you, but you don't always see the camera's not always in frame. And so I think part of what that scene does, that was an
1: amazing shot was like, you see her talking to the guy flirting with him for like five minutes and then mm-hmm. and then the camera like pan like your as the viewer the camera pans over and then you see that the camera guy has been filming them the entire time like that was amazing i was like oh my god you know oh so i think, she's aware of this you know
0: i think it's a scene that works even better on a second viewing because yeah. you have a better sense of what the like the uh, the filmmakers are doing with that scene which is like playing with your ex oh ooh, like yeah whitney doesn't care about asher at all she's just happy to find this stranger like right. at this at this art gathering like go off with him and it's like maybe i i, I, I think there's I do a lot like, of truth to that there's truth i, to do, that. Assume, <laughs> I do assume she was like to have sex with someone other than asher and yeah. whether she's doing that or not i don't know but they they're playing with all of your expectations of this relationship and then to have that camera appear and add that layer you're talking about is just kind of a, a master stroke
1: that is is just really good audience manipulation agreed 100 percent We last see Kara and Whitney on the couch with Whitney asking Kara to make increasingly misleading statements about how (laughs) Kara feels about Whitney's work. Kara seems at a loss and then just parrots back whatever Whitney asks. Whitney even asks about the point of Kara's art installation, at which point Kara reveals it was a metaphor for the way a person's identity, uh, especially as a native person, is slowly sliced off and handed out to people. Uh, All right. This was the most upsetting scene of the show for me because... It's really, she is describing cutting off pieces of herself to give to Whitney. And that is literally what is happening in the scene that we are watching. When Whitney asks, Kara, hey, what was the point of that? That was such a, I was so upset by that, Patrick, because it was (laughs) such a critical part of the art installation to not talk about it. Mm -hmm. What was your reaction? I mean, do you ever want to watch a person
0: sell out in real time and Mm. deal with the consequences? Uh, I think that's what that scene is about, is for so long, Kara has felt as though she is the one in control. Like, she is the one manipulating Whitney. Ha ha! I got one up on this, you know, this rich white person. Like, I'm hanging out with them and making them feel cool and I'm taking their money and going off and, and doing my art. Then what she's found is when she took the cash, when she showed up here. I mean, there's a a scene in the restaurant where she says, "Well, I don't have to act, right?" And then what do we get by the end of this? Well, she's acting, mm-hmm. um, and and that you know we get the camera, uh, you know, uh, operator, you know, mentioning, "Oh, the audio is good enough." And the same way that you mentioned, like, sure, it's not maybe great for a room of people, but two no. people, relative quiet, the shotgun mic is going to do its job. They can they can make it work for for a scene. And it's just given that what we know about Whitney so far, where this character is headed, what other things that could occur, like I suspect Kara's career is about to be forever changed by like her actions in this scene in particular, right? Like there were moments to walk mm. back. There were moments mm. to get away. And then here she sort of does the most damn thing possible. She could. And she seems to realize it like those yeah. final moments, like there are multiple moments in this episode that I figured, Oh, this is going to be the closing shot because like, th- this is just heartbreaking. And like, this yeah. is, feels like a very natural moment to end the episode on. And then I hovered my mouse over and was like, Nope, like lots more to go. Like that
1: sucks for Kara. What else is in store? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is really sad. And also, I'm just going to put this out there. Uh, she sells out for not a particularly high price, you know, $20,000. No. $20, it's not uh, in the moment, right? You know, it's, it's, it's yeah, in it's, many ways, it's
0: it's, it's it's Whitney reversed, right? Like, it's short-term gain. But sh- what is she going to lose in the process?
1: It would take me way more than $20,000 to say I like Patrick Klepek. I'm just going to put that out there, okay? So... But what if you did it in, like, a baby whiny voice? Like, what do I got to pay for that? <laughs> All right, let's talk about Dougie and Asher. Asher sits down for his interview with Dougie where he swaps between innocuous questions about Asher's contributions to the house and intimate questions about Asher and Whitney. Asher seems increasingly uncomfortable at Dougie's line of questioning, which includes revealing he knows a lot about Whitney and Asher's sex life, like Asher wanting to see his wife with other men. Dougie plays it like a joke and the two exit the interview deciding to eat dinner together.
0: (laughs) That's, that's, the punchline of that is, I, betrayed
1: by all the words that come before it <laughs> such a weird first of all i actually think dougie is overall like a pretty solid interviewer like yeah he has a very he has a very like a disarming quality about him where he asks a question and it's not you know one of the most difficult parts of being an interviewer and patrick uh you have experience of this as well is like making the the subject feel comfortable and I think Dougie has like a very soft spoken way about it. like, hey, what do you think about, hey, what do you think about this? You know, and like, also
0: in a short think- amount of time, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. it's it's much easier to get an intimate answer from somebody over the course of an hour, right. two hours. Right. It is much more difficult to get something like that in, you know, a, a course of minutes. Like I assume these interviews are, you know, maybe maybe they're an hour, and we're only getting glimpses. But like he, I think you're right. Like he is very good at making someone say things to a degree of comfortability that they're probably not prepared for. Um, And I think Asher in particular is not very in control of his reactions. Right. I think we, we see Whitney very in control of how she reacts to things. And it's unclear to me how much Dougie is disarming her or how much Dougie is just setting her up to like pull a trigger, you know, of a gun she's already
1: loaded. I don't, I don't know. Well, I think it's, I think what you're r- r- alluding to is the fact that, and this is true, you know, do not take this personally, Patrick, but uh, when when somebody is the interviewer or they are the journalist, they often, I, I was going to say they often have an agenda, but that's not entirely, like, that makes it sound more nefarious th- th- than it is. You have a they're framework, often, you're like... Yeah, uh, they're uh, often you're... looking for a story, they're often looking for a specific story. Mm-hmm. And this, this is actually, I don't think this is this is controversial, that like... I'm not saying this is you necessarily. I'm just saying like in general, many journalists often like have a story. They're like, oh, I want to tell a story about blank. And then they look for subjects that exemplify that point of view that that often happens, right? Um, Because they want to tell the story about blank because they think blank story is important because they've learned about it from their sources and so on. Um, And Dougie clearly has an agenda uh, that he's trying to, or a story that he's trying to tell And what's interesting is that Asher has no idea what that story is, right? No. And we might, (laughs) we, and we, you know, he, I anticipate he will learn what that story is uh, whenever he sees the footage. But anyway, the whole thing was profoundly uncomfortable. What what did you make of the scene
0: where Dougie is intently looking at kind of a downward shot that's on Asher's hands?
1: Yeah, that was odd. I, 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 at first I thought it was another dick reference you know Mm -hmm. um but then the that moment happens when he says like what would you be without whitney and he's like i would have nothing i would have nothing and i think it's just it could also just generically be a shot of showing how pathetic this guy is okay because he's like i i would have nothing without my wife right i don't think like the audience of hdtv is gonna know uh that uh you know asher has a small penis i don't know if that's going to be part of the, the yeah, i yeah
0: i think you're right i think that is more just to elicit a heightened reaction and then it's very easy to imagine how one would then take all of these these pieces and fit them together to craft the narrative that dougie is clearly putting together in his head hand in hand with with whitney
1: on that note by the way patrick lepik did you have a chance to watch the flip episode I did. Oh yeah, um, let's let's. You know, I meant to bring that up at the top. Let's save it for the end, uh, mm-hmm. but it's something I do want to mention. So, okay. Anyway, super uncomfortable scene where Dougie basically says that Asher wanted to be a cuck, uh, and he was not ready to say that on national television. Uh, he plays <laughs> it out as a joke. At dinner, there's very little tension. Asher reveals how grateful he is for Dougie coming to help with the show, apologizes for not being around more when Dougie's wife died. Dougie orders a chicken as a way of screwing with Asher, but he claims she's not the person who left the cooked chicken in the bathroom. The two then go back and forth about who's going to drive them home sober. Dougie wins and ends up ordering a Coke before hustling over to a server and requesting they secretly turn it into a rum and Coke. Abshire texts Asher at dinner requesting Asher come over and fix a smoke alarm that's beeping because it needs a battery. Uh, so anyway, in the car on the way over, Dougie asks Asher to hand the, the breathalyzer, which reveals he's under the limit. Now, I looked up what the blood alcohol limit is. It's point 0.8, right? 0.08% or... uh, is my understand My my understanding of what the general limit right, is. Right, yes, yes. 0.08% is the legal limit, and I think he was at 0.076, if I recall correctly. Seven six or, seven eight. Or I seven, mean, you eight.
0: Gre- And you saw the green, right? I assume it's probably supposed to like a thermometer, you know, or, you know, like change
1: colors. If you're, I guess the point I was making is it was extremely close to the limit. It was (laughs) scarily close to the limit for somebody who has been drunk driving and ended up killing his wife before, you know? Um, And
0: I have to, I'm curious what your takeaway is. We've had multiple sequences of,
1: of Dougie
0: pushing the limits on his drinking, then getting to a car then checking himself and then making an action or reaction based on that. Yeah. My sense of it is that he believes what happened with his wife was, was you know, the story he tells is that yes. it's not because I was drunk. It's 100%. because another car hit us. And 100%. so the way he is processing this trauma is to, in, in many ways, like drink and drive and prove like it wasn't that I mm. was drinking at dinner it was the car that hit us. And he does this sobriety test to try and, you know, I I guess it's not a fully formed thought, but like, it seems like he's challenging himself to fit this previous narrative. So he can get himself off the hook uh, instead of accepting his like part of the blame in, in what happened. And part of that is walking up to the line of being drunk and driving as almost like a challenge to yeah, himself, to show
1: like, hey, do you see? I can still drive safely, even right. at you know, extremely close to the limit. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think that's a great point, Patrick. So yeah, uh, I think that's that makes a lot of sense, and uh, is it feels like something that Dougie would do. So anyway, uh, they go to the gas station. They get a battery, and uh, Asher makes or Dougie makes jokes about Asher wanting to watch gay porn. And they talk about getting Nala to curse Dougie. I don't even understand what the purpose of this is. You know, like <laughs> I guess they just want to see if it's real or not. Right. Like, wouldn't it be if we knew we lived in a world where curses are real <laughs> in, in some ways it would be reassuring because it's like uh, you could explain terrible things that happen because of the curse, you know? Uh, and and I can understand why people would crave that. But it's just a weird plan and obviously it goes extremely poorly. Um well, and I, it's, and it's
0: and it seems like Dougie has ulterior motives, right? Like he, he's he's almost as though he's preying upon the fact that Asher has this hang up about the curse. And again, I think that's why I was so kind of hung up on the on the breathalyzer was like Dougie's a man looking for like like to be absolved of his sins.
1: Right. And... Yeah. and if he can prove like curses are real, then he could, maybe he was cursed and right. that's why his wife died, you know? And, right. and then he's not responsible. Right. right. So, uh, but all the stuff with Nala, I think is really cool because I think it just walks right up to the edge of something supernatural is happening here. Um, including like her just screaming when Dougie presses her too hard for the curse. I thought that was like a very frightening moment. Uh, And then she explains, I I, I thought he needed help. And that's why I screamed for you, you know, uh, for her father. (laughs) She's not wrong. (laughs) Dougie (laughs) does need help. (laughs) So anyway, really tense, you know, really tense scene. Well done. Uh, Back in the car, Asher gets angry at Dougie for supposedly duping him into the situation. Um, And Dougie needles Asher about whether he's actually a good person, which escalates into Asher poking at Dougie about his dead wife. Very painful scene. You, You really get the sense that he's crossed the line. Uh, but when Dougie drops Asher off as Asher's walking into the house, Dougie tries to curse Asher. The episode ends with a garbage truck demolishing the racist statue that Whitney brought Kara. So any uh, other thoughts about any of that, Patrick Lepic? Uh I really appreciated
0: the dinner scene with Asher and Dougie, because in a show in which I can't tell if anyone actually likes each other, or what are their motivations for being in this relationship with one another, whether that's a friendship or something more intimate. I don't know. Like that dinner, I kind of actually got the sense for the first time in this show that Asher and Dougie or Asher viewed himself genuinely as Dougie's friend. I don't know how Dougie views Asher necessarily, but Asher is a character that is very difficult to pierce. All these characters are difficult to pierce in terms of, what is their ultimate, like, what do they truly believe? Like, what is the difference between the performance and what's in their heart of hearts? And, like, when Asher is going on, like, talking about, like, I'm so thankful you came out here. I'm sorry about not reaching out with you. Like, I I don't think he's doing any bullshitting there. I, I truly think, like, he believes he is Dougie's friend. Dougie is one of his good friends. Now, granted, in the midst of that, we also get this reveal where like, you know, I really... You know, Dougie, I really liked it how you, you know, involved me with all of your friends' pranks uh, all the time, which certainly suggests that there was a difference in power dynamics mm-hmm, in the relationship, mm-hmm. which is probably Dougie using Asher's interest of him as a friend as a way of preying upon him, like in mm-hmm. a much younger age. Um, but however things have shaken out, they find themselves in each other's lives, and I, I think Asher genuinely views Dougie as a friend. I think Dougie does view asher as a friend but is in like many ways unable to sort of process what that would actually mean i just find the relationship so interesting and much more than i would have anticipated from the start of the show when i it's not where i would have taken dougie as a character to go and uh, i'm glad that we're not in this place wondering why is dougie still on screen none of this makes sense i think the show has done a really good job of justifying his presence in the show He doesn't feel like a caricature. He feels like he's got real depth and like enough intimacy with all the characters involved that. I don't know. At this point I remember reading some of the earlier views of the curse, where it was like, like, why is Dougie still around? Like what you should just abandon him. I was like, I don't know. I think the show is actually justified, like rightly why he's still in the show and why these characters are still involved with him. I think those
1: are all great points where I get hung up is, you know, if you were interviewing me, Patrick Lepic for remap radio. <laughs> uh-huh. And then you were you you talked about the time <laughs> that I confided in you about my cucking kink uh publicly. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That would probably be like a relationship changer. You yeah. know, for, for me for me, right? Yeah. I'd hope so. At the same time, you know, like there's some people for whom your relationship goes is so long standing. Mm-hmm. Like if we had been friends for like 15, 20 years. And you did that, that'd be a lot different than if you did that if we knew each other for, like, six months. Right. And so these guys have clearly known each other for, like, a really long time. And maybe that's, like, not as unforgivable if you've known each other for that long. But I'm just going to say, Patrick, don't talk about my cucking preferences (laughs) to the media. That's my... Well, that was my...
0: That was my intention <laughs> in this interview, David, and I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Like that's why I reached out, and I, I that's why that's why I wanted to get on the phone with you, and like yeah, I just, yeah, I just yeah. wanted to talk about the cucking, and I'm I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You
1: you know what I'm saying though, because I, I was like, because because even Asher in that scene is like, well, that's the last time I'm telling you anything. He's clearly very upset by it. Yeah. Uh. And but then in the next scene, it's like, oh well, nothing's really happened, or or you know, well, but or Asher's it made him able. Realize, yeah, yeah.
0: He's able to compartmentalize, right? We yeah, see this yeah, over yeah. and over in the show where. Yeah. And, and by no means am I arguing that Asher is
1: good <laughs> <laughs> necessarily. Healthily balanced. Yeah. Right.
0: But I do think he is regularly wronged in a way that can sometimes feel disproportionate. And his reaction to being wronged is not to process it and re like, it, but is to just sort of take the hit and move forward. And it's like, how after someone did that to you in front of a camera crew, uh, even if they play it off as a joke and it seems like the crew bought it. Why, why would you go to dinner with them afterwards? And so I think, right. you know, his relation with Ash, with Ash and Dougie's relationship is itself toxic, even though I think there is, I don't, know, I think there is something genuine in there, like between them, even if they don't quite realize why they have remained in each other's lives.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fair. Fair. All right, Patrick Klepik. uh, I I want to talk to you about this Flip Lanthropy episode that aired on YouTube that we can uh, discuss. But before we get to that, I want to mention that if you want to support this podcast and help to keep it going, you can become a paid member at DecodingTV.com. Get ad-free episodes and early access to episodes. Thanks to everyone at DecodingTV.com who makes the show possible. Let us know what you thought of this episode of The Curse at DecodingTV at gmail.com. I also want to say keep uh, keep it tuned to Decoding TV for our coverage of uh fargo murder at the end of the world the crown and we have some uh, exciting announcements in the new year that we'll have to share with you about what we'll be covering and how we'll be structuring the show then so keep it tuned in uh to decoding tv patrick klepek let people know where they can find more of your work on the internet
0: yeah you can follow all my video game uh, talk over at remapradio.com and wherever podcasts are downloaded and if you want to subscribe to my parenting and gaming newsletter that's called crossplay and it's over at crossplay.news
1: all right, Patrick Lepic, before we wrap up today, let's talk about this episode of Flip that was uploaded to Nathan Fielder's YouTube channel. So we'll, I'll link to it in the show notes, but basically he uploaded to his YouTube channel like a sample episode of Flip uh, that's like done up with like all the music and the color grading and everything. Uh, and I have to say it is amazing. Uh, it's really worth watching it really does a great job of imitating how HGTV shows and many reality shows look and feel and sound. Uh, And I also think, you know, my reaction to you when we, when I sent it to you over text is uh, that it makes it, it makes Whitney and Asher seem even worse than the show does somehow. I think like, like the, the brazenness of their swindle is laid bare in the, sample flipanthropy in a way that it's not really in the curse of the show, I find. Uh, what was your reaction to this sample episode of flipanthropy, Patrick? Well, I presume uh, that my
0: interpretation of this edit was like, this was what was sent to, or is like a version of what was sent to HGTV and ultimately led them to greenlighting the show. Mm. Because it helps explain the conversation that the network has with Asher and Whitney, which is like, yeah, yeah we love it. But, like, what if less of you kicking out the residents and yeah. more about the houses and all the all of that stuff? Because you're absolutely right. Like, it's a lot of what they're doing is sort of kind of abstract or loose. And then when it's tightly edited together with the bounces, sort are of like, doop, doom doop, doom like, the sort of music that you get in a lot of these shows, it, the playfulness feels... Like, utterly, like, monstrous and grotesque Um, when you watch this woman get shuffled from, like, one house to another. The sequence where she's explaining, like, her, like, family members have died in this home and, like, they're just going to knock right. it
1: down. They, like, oh, they my dis- God. So, basically, Whitney and Asher, like, buy this woman's house. They eject her from the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though like her family has lived in this house for generations, they like knock down the house and replace it with their monstrosity mirror house. <laughs> they, then they take the woman and show her how environmentally unfriendly her house was. And then, uh and then they, they like go to her new house and they're like, Hey, you know, the great news is we've decided to cover 50% of your rent for the first you know or or it's like 20% of your rent for the first 18 months or something like it was it was something very very small uh in her new place so you know it it's not it was not particularly generous Mm-mm. uh patrick i'm i'm going to go i'm going to go off script here okay i'm oh. just going to all right
0: I, fall. all right finally
1: this is going to lose a lot of decoding tv subscribers (laughs) oh no but i'm just gonna i'm gonna gonna say i'm ready i'm ready there's something there's something but it's okay it's patrick here's a lesson i've learned when you want to make controversial statements make them about 55 minutes into a one-hour podcast uh and that way people will be upset less about it okay Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also do it in a show that like everybody's watching right
0: like the curse the show that everyone can't <laughs> stop talking about there, there's so some... pod- stop talking about the curse like it's clickbait because you're do- talking about the curse
1: again there's something so brazen about displacing someone from their house and then demonstrating to them why it's a good thing they were displaced and then <laughs> filming that and using that as content right like there's something really brazen and offensive about that and honestly A small part of me feels like that's kind of the case with some of the movies that came out this year, and I'm just going to name them: "Killers of the Flower Moon" and "Oppenheimer." Right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which, uh, I'm just gonna let's just go with the case of "Oppenheimer," which is like about we we have these movies that are made about white people. White Mm -hmm. people are the protagonists of both of those movies. Um, you could argue that Lily Gladstone is also main character, but I would strongly debate that about *Killers of flower moon but anyway uh and it's like about how the, the movies are made by white people about how these other white people did these horrifying things and now we are reckoning with that today and then the white people that made the new things get the awards for like having recognized how evil the old white people were
0: mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. and
1: and i do think that there are you know people who like react to that whole cycle negatively and i don't know that i am one of those people but i certainly sympathize with that point of view of like hey hey we recognized how terrible we were like shouldn't we get some award for that and it's called an oscar you know like anyway okay
0: Oh, I, don't think it was that. I think you're okay. I don't think that was controversial. That controversial
1: st- controversial <laughs> segment <laughs> over. Um, New segment but- of the podcast. Like, <laughs> Dave- welcome to Dave- <laughs> ba- possibly bad takes that we might <laughs> yeah. delete. Dave's controversy corner. Anyway, uh, so uh, yeah, like uh, that was a point of view that was shared with me about Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon, and it was one that I was very highly sympathetic to. Uh, Because that's ultimately, you know, that's ultimately what those movies are. They are, they are from the perspective of white people committing atrocities against people of color, basically. Yeah. And it's like, and they are made by white people. And now the white people are getting awards, you know? So it's like, it kind of, in a very weird roundabout way, reminded me of (laughs) Whitney showing this woman how her house was terrible. And by the way, it's a a good thing, actually, that we're tearing it down and you're losing everything you ever had. (laughs) Okay. Now, and now hgtv is picking up the series okay <laughs> all right anyway for more scorching hot takes about the state of cinema keep attended to decoding tv uh, uh and podcast.decodingtv.com we'll be back next week with another episode recap of the curse he is patrick klepek i am david chen we'll see you later goodbye